So we're going to go to 1 John chapter 3, continuing our series, working through this particular letter. And let me just pray one more time for us, for all of us. Father, here we are. We're in your presence. It's good to gather with other brothers and sisters, with those whom you've redeemed. And Father, we come not to hear a sermon, not even to hear words of wisdom alone. We're here to hear your voice, your spirit speaking to us. As your word is proclaimed, may it find fertile soil in our hearts and may you accomplish for the glory of your name all that you desire in this moment. And that's only through the power of your spirit. Help me, Lord, give me a clarity to proclaim your word this morning and give us listening ears to hear what your spirit is saying. We love you, Jesus. Open our eyes to see you. Open our hearts to know you, we pray. In your wonderful name. Amen. Amen. So I know some of you have been here for all of our series so far, preaching through the letter of 1 John. Others are perhaps joining us this particular Sunday for the first time. But we ended the last part of our series in chapter 3, verse 1, where John writes this, See what kind of love The Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. The NLT says it this way. See how very much our Father loves us, for He calls us His children, and that is what we are. We don't suspect it. It's not a suspicion. It's not a desire. It is a reality. Now, I know there's a tendency as we talk about the love of God, as we read this passage, we're like, yeah, I've heard that before. Who's never heard a passage like that before? We've heard it. We know it, at least on some level. And yet sometimes I believe we forget the gravity, the reality, the incomparability of his incredible love for us. And even in the midst of a series, as John has written about truth, and we've talked about truth and the priority and the power of doctrine, of knowing what we believe, of investigating some complex issues. We never want to get so caught up in the complexity, and there's a lot of good things in there, and miss the simplicity of what this story is all about. And I had a reminder just last night. I've discovered that parenting is a fascinating journey. Is there any parents who'd say amen to that? There's some wins and the seasons of parenting where just leaving the house feels like a win. We made it out, sweetheart, pour a drink, let's celebrate. There's fails and then there's moments of sheer terror. We had one of those latter moments last night and for those who were in our lovely city enjoying the winter weather, you'll know it was freezing and I sat there all day in the house thinking, I've got so many things to do around the property And in the end, my desire got the better of me. So a couple of hours before dark, I headed up the back of my block to work on some fencing. One of my children, there's only one who had ever braved the cold, who was that crazy. And so she joined me there and we were there working together. She loves to help her dad. She loves to be there. Had the dogs with us. And uh, she'd go away and play a bit and she'd come back. And I mean, it's freezing, it's snowing, it's sleeting. You kind of think, why on earth are we outside trying to do this? And so it was about 10 minutes 
or so before I knew it would be dark. And I said to my little girl, look, sweetheart, I'm just going to finish up here. I'm going to head back to the house. Okay, daddy, no worries. She's off. She's playing. And I hadn't seen her for a while. So I presume that she'd headed back to the house. Now, just a description of the block we're on. We live out of town. We've got a, a small acreage there. And it's, the back of the block is very sloped. So we're working on the fence and it's up and it's down and just down from us. There's a, a gorge and a creek that runs through there, especially when it's, when it's rainy. So it's bushy, it's rocky terrain all around that particular area and just borders onto National Park. We've gone for an hour up to the next ridge and it's heavy, dense bushland. So it's getting dark. I headed back. I was in the shed unloading my things and I thought I heard this call in the distance. Dada! I thought, oh, that's a little strange. I thought she'd gone back to the house, but that sounded like it was coming from up the back of the block, somewhere in the bushland as the sun was setting and the final rays of light were growing dim. So I rushed inside. I said, sweetheart, have you seen our little girl? She said, no, she hasn't come back. So then you have that moment of panic. How many parents know that moment of panic? I've had a few moments where children have been lost, at times intentionally, Surprise, Daddy. Oh, I'll give you a surprise, all right. You just wait till we get home. Other times, like this particular instance, I just knew that my little girl was up there, unintentionally lost in the darkening woods and forest. So I grabbed as many torches or flashlights for the Americans in the room, and I headed up the back to try and find my little girl. And only... A father, only a parent can know the passion that there is when you're searching for your little girl. She's nine years of age and she's lost. And I knew within 10 minutes it's going to be pitch black. It's slowing, snowing and slowing. It's sleeting. That's snow and sleet combined. A new word. It's freezing cold. And the practical part of your mind is thinking, well, you know, we're not that far from other houses. Surely she's found her way somewhere the other part of your mind is thinking, what if she slipped and fell? It's wet, it's dark. What if something's happened to her? She's out in the wild. Now, we don't have many wild animals. We get plenty of deer, plenty of foxes, as I've shared about in the past. And if anyone was to survive a night in the wild, it would be her. I mean, she'd just catch a bear with her hands and <laughs> live inside its carcass. I mean, she's that sort of girl. She's tough. She is tough. Keep it real. Keep it real. Trying, trying. So we had that moment and I'd looked everywhere. It had been about half an hour, but it felt like an eternity. I'm thinking, where is my little girl? I'm yelling for her. I'm screaming for her. I come back to the house. Ali's starting to panic. She said, what do we do? Do we call the police? I mean, it's, by now, it's pitch black. There's no way you're going to find anything. And there's just miles of bushland behind our place. And so we're in that, in that zone of what do we do? Do we call the police? Do we ring someone else to come and help us? I mean, I was committed. I was searching the whole night. I was not going to give up until I found my little girl. And then just as I was about to head off on my, my next endeavor to find her, I saw right down at the bottom of the driveway a little figure with somebody else. So I jumped in the car and I flew down there. And what had happened was she'd been up the back with me. We were with the dogs. She, the dogs had chased off after something, as they do. And so she chased off after the dogs, worried about the dogs. The dogs are going to get lost. And in fact, she got herself lost. And she'd ended up a couple of properties down. And fortunately, we know the people there. And they were up the back of their block looking for deer, of all things. And they heard this little girl crying in the forest. And so they went out and they found her. 
They brought her back. They said, we found your child wandering the bush. <laughs> wasn't, wasn't our uh, finest moment of parenting, that's for sure. But I tell you what, you, you get that moment after all of that panic when you set eyes on your little girl and the passion and the love and the desire. You know, I had some other priorities and other worries and other issues that were kind of going through my mind before that moment. You know what I was thinking about in that moment? Nothing else but my little girl whom I love, whom I would give anything for. And you see, we need at times, well, I do, maybe you don't, I need that recalibrating moment just to recognize what actually matters in life. What is actually important practically in my life? And I had another moment, I've shared about it before some years ago, the same child actually lost in a very public place and the panic and the pursuit to find her. And in that moment, and the Lord reminded me of this just last night, he spoke to me about his heart. He said, Andrew, now you get it. Now you see a glimpse of the heart of an eternal father. You see, this is not just see what kind of love the Father has lavished upon us. It's warm fuzzies. It's nice. We'll smile. We'll be happy. I mean, it is, but it's a radical love. It is a love that caused him to give up everything in pursuit of you and in pursuit of me. This is the love of the Father. See, the moment we lose the wonder the, the just the, the incomprehensible nature of his love, then we've lost sight of what his love is. Because the moment we look into that, there's nothing more radical, more wonderful, more impacting, more life-changing than this father who gave everything for us. That would have been a good moment for an amen, but we'll press on. I thank you. I heard that one. See, it's a reminder of who he is. It's a reminder of who I am, the one who has been found. See, that's my father. That was me, partly because of my own intentions, partly because I was just lost. And yet he came out into the darkness, not just the darkness of the world, but the darkness of my heart and my sin and my foolishness. And he rescued me. And he found me. And he brought me into his house and his arms and his fellowship. You see, this, I believe, is what John is going to emphasize here. He's talking about a reality and not just a reality that we need to understand, but a reality that we need to live in. That's what you've been called Two, don't let anything distract you from the purpose for which you've been created, from this love of a God who rescued and redeemed us. See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called the children of God, and so are we. This place when we come home, this place where we discover our purpose, our meaning, our fulfillment, our mission, our joy, all tied within that reality. It's a message for another day, but the other thing when we think of his love, 
when I think of last night, when I think of other moments, I think, how could I not spend my life, therefore, in pursuit of the ones that he loves? How can that not be my mission? It must be. That's his heart that loves me, that pursued me, that came after me. How could I not, therefore, spend everything I have to go and find the ones whom his heart loves? See, I know there's stuff going on in the world. I know there's darkness around. I know that for many of us, we're like, you know what? I don't care. Let's just let the world go to hell in a handbasket. Now, let's just, let's just check off. But, you know, there's too many people that I love. There's too many people that he loves and that he shed his blood on a cross for us not to do whatever we can to go and find and spend our lives in pursuit, pointing them towards the love of an eternal father. Now you can clap. There you go. I'll give you the moments. It's all right. So that was a very long introduction, but let's have a look here. We're going to unpack in chapter 3 of 1 John what John is going to say to us about what it means to live as sons and daughters. And the title of the message is this, Remember Your Source. Remember Your Source. I want you to hold that phrase in your mind, that thought. Remember Your Source. What is your source? See, we all have a source. And John is going to bring us back to this place where there's a reality of our source. Let's leave some scripture before I take our whole time just with the introduction. We're up to chapter 3, verse 4. Remembering the context, he's reminded them of the love of God. Verse 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. For sin is lawlessness. Now let's unpack just for a moment. Verse 4 begins with everybody who makes a practice. He's not talking about sin in an accidental sense. He's talking about sin that has been made a practice in our lives. See, don't understand what John is saying. This is the same John that in chapter 1, verse 8, he said, if we claim to be without sin, we live in deception. We lie. We all have sin. But if we confess our sin in chapter 1, verse 10, he is faithful to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Chapter 2, verse 1, he says, And if you do sin, knowing that we will sin, you have an advocate, a propitiation. An advocate is one who's, who pleads our case before another. The propitiation is one who fulfills the legal demands. So he's not saying that the goal here is that we're reaching a place, as some people would suggest, where we're never going to sin. And if you do, well, you're not really a Christian. He's talking about those who make a practice. So how do we reconcile this? Because the other extreme then is to say, well, we're always going to sin. So why bother even trying to stop sinning? And it's a little bit like who watched the World Cup last night? I know it was, a bit of a, it was a bit of a struggle, wasn't it? Do we do the World Cup soccer? Do we do the Australian cricket? Do we do the rugby? Do we want to ask for a show of hands? There's too much on. Temptation everywhere. But we watched the World Cup with my girls. We made it through the first half before they fell asleep. Soccer is a little boring at times, I'm just saying. But you never get a soccer player lining up for a penalty goal and saying, you know what, I'm not really going to aim for perfection this time. I might just put it a little wide. Forget the top corner. I'm just going to sort of aim for the crowd, see if I can put it just over the top. 
You never get a golfer who lines up and says, you know what, I'm not going to go for the hole-in-one this time. I'll just sort of put it off to the side of the green. I'll maybe aim for the sand bunker. Feel like some time in the sand. You see, the aim, isn't it, as an athlete, is always for perfection. But the reality is that we will not always reach perfection. It's the same for us. Perfection is the goal. John says, I write, so that you will not sin, but we know that sin is a reality. And when there is sin, then we know we have an advocate. See, sin is a reality, but it must not rule. The second part of of verse 4, it says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Now, this is a fascinating phrase because we're talking about love. And yet the first thing he says is that love has a context of law. And if you're outside the law, then you are living in lawlessness. How is the context of love law? It's not often that we use these two words in the same sentence. But I want to encourage us that law is loving. You see, God is offering us something that is wonderful and for our joy. He doesn't say, behold the love of God. Behold this love that we've talked about. But just recognize that you're then going to live a life of misery. I mean, living as a Christian is miserable. You're going to be striving and struggling. Behold the love, but recognize that you'll be working out your salvation with struggle and with suffering and just plain being miserable. We won't ask for a show of hands there. He says, behold the love that is your joy. It's your satisfaction. Behold the love that is your purpose and your delight. Sometimes we we think that it's the enemy who created pleasure. See, pleasure and joy and satisfaction was not Satan's idea. It was God's idea. He created us for pleasure. He created us for joy. He created us to be satisfied. All Satan does is he corrupts that and he points us towards things that though they seem attractive will never ultimately fulfill us. And so John is reminding them, remember the source. There's a source is God, but there is a source and it's not sin. There's something about sin that just appeals to our humanness, our fallen nature. But true joy comes through this context of law. There's this interesting phrase that we've used in recent years as a society that all love is equal. Love is love. I always find that's fascinating, and I know it's used in a particular context. But all love is not love. I mean, I love my wife, and I love coffee. And both of them are gifts from God. I'm in no denial there. They are good gifts. They are gracious gifts. But I am going to be in a world of hurt if I ever suggest that my love for my wife and my love for my coffee are equal. You see, love only finds, and we talked a few weeks ago, its fullest expression within the framework of that which is truth, with that which is reality. Not in the absence of it. Love is defined by the law within which it finds itself. Here's just another quick example. I was watching this program recently on the ABC, and I know I'm talking about marriage and things like that a lot. But this was talking about what they call a growing trend of open marriages, interviewing couples who've decided that 
You know, no, no longer is their marriage a commitment between two people. They want to open their marriage up, have multiple partners. And one statement, it just, it just really hit me. And they said this. They said, well, we're so much happier. This has saved our marriage. Our marriage was miserable. And now that it's open, it's wonderful. So much happier. See, the problem is that they've actually diluted what real marriage is actually about. Because real marriage is never about satisfying your own lusts of your own flesh. Marriage is this unique human relationship between a man and a woman where self-giving love grows and develops to its fullest potential and leads to lasting meaning, fulfillment and joy. It's not happiness, fleeting happiness that sin can provide but then leave us empty. It's true joy that we're pursuing. And that's only found within the covenant of marriage. You can find the satisfaction for your selfish desires anywhere you like, but God is offering us something so much better. The problem is that so often we live with a sense of open marriages with God. And John is reminding them there's love. There is something that is so much greater. Don't be distracted. Don't be persuaded to live outside what God has provided for you. Because this is good and this is true joy. I want to make one more point and then kind of lead into what, where I'm really going this morning. And I know we've only got one verse done. Let's move on. Verse 5, how did he make this possible? You know that he being Jesus appeared in order to take away sins. In him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. What is it that he has done? Verse 5, it says he has taken away sins. And then we read in verse 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. He's saying recognize what Christ has done for us. He hasn't just covered up our sin. He hasn't just made provision for some part of it to down payment. The rest is coming later. It says he's destroyed the works of the enemy. A little bit like this. See, we live on a property, as I've already said, and there is this fear in my mind and in my wife's mind that at times there may be snakes around. In the summer months, fortunately, they're all gone elsewhere in this freezing cold. But if I saw a snake, I recognize and I realize the danger of a snake to my children. And I know there are some snake lovers, you don't need to indicate by raising your hand. I know there is. We had dinner with a snake-loving couple recently. They said, I love snakes. I remember a dinner that Ali and I had some years ago with a pastor of Impact Church down in, in Monash, and they had a whole wall of snakes in their living room. The whole living room was a snake den. And my wife, who hates snakes, was sitting there. I've never seen her so nervous. I said, would you like us to get the snakes out? No. You can feed them live rats. No, no. Now I've got nothing against rat, uh, rats. I've got nothing against snakes. But if there is a snake in my backyard, I'm not just going to cover it up. I know legally you're supposed to remove them, but I have a shotgun. And let me just say, they will be removed 
They may just not be in the condition in which I found them. Because the Bible says to destroy the works of the enemy. And that's what he's done. He's come to destroy the works of the enemy. He's not covered it up. He's broken the power of sin. He's paid the penalty. He has removed it in pieces. It's gone. It's gone. It's been destroyed. Why, he says, would you go back and try to look at sin for your own satisfaction? It's done. It's been destroyed. He's offering you something so much better. Let's just finish off the passage. So the reason he came was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him. He cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now we're going to talk about love next week. But here we're talking about practicing righteousness. Here is the evidence, he's saying. Look for this evidence in your own life. Are you practicing righteousness? Okay, well, what does that mean? Glad you asked. Two words, let's break them down. First of all, righteousness. What is righteousness? Here is a very strict definition. It says, the state of him who is as he ought to be, the condition acceptable to God. So how do we practice righteousness? And weigh that up with 2 Corinthians 5.21. Paul says this, God who made him, being Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So what is the key of righteousness? Is this a work of us or is it a work of of him. Is this something we do or is this something that he has already done? See, I would suggest this righteousness is far more who we are than what we do. In fact, if we could do righteousness, then there would be many non-believers who were more righteous than believers. Because there's many people in the world who do better things, live better lives than people who are inside the church. What a mockery that makes of the work of Christ. He became sin for us so that he could do what we could do in our own merit and our own sense of self-effort. See, we cannot even strive to arrive in righteousness. Remember, he says here to be righteous as he is righteous. The goal is to be like Jesus. So if you're going to try in your own strength to be like Jesus, I salute you. Good luck. Let me know how you get on. See, righteousness is not about us living in our own works. It's about living in what he's already done. Remember the source. Remember the source. Source of my righteousness is not me. Praise God. Otherwise, I'd be in a lot of trouble. Source of my righteousness is him. The second word, to practice. Now, this is an interesting word. The, the word literally means to make manifest, to bring forth, to create. For some reason, in the ESV, it translates it practice. And I'd love to do some more research and find out how the translators arrived there. But I do like the picture. 
You see, here's the reality. You practice to bring forth what you already have. I have a girl who loves ballet, and she's always been good at ballet, and she practices in ballet to perfect and to bring forth and to make manifest the gift that she already has. This is a somewhat clumsy example, but she's tried on the odd occasion. She says, Dad, can I teach you some ballet? And I don't put the tutu on, but I give it a go. She'll teach me some little steps. And then she'll look at me and she'll say, oh, Dad, that's really bad. You are really bad. And I say, sweetie, I cannot bring forth that which I do not have. You are gifted at ballet. I have two left feet. I am not called to be a ballerina. Thank you, Jesus. I would make a very bad ballerina, I'm just saying. See, to practice means to bring forth that which he has already done. Let me illustrate this from a different point of view. Sometimes we think of sin, there's a number of words, we don't have time to develop them, used in Scripture for sin. We're talking a lot about sin in this passage. And the most common definition of the word that's used most commonly for sin is to miss the mark. And we think, and rightly so, that that means that we're aiming for the target, like the soccer player, we're going for the goal, but we've just got off track a little. Now, that is one valid definition of sin and what it means to miss the mark. But at times, it means something far different. It's not to aim at the target and miss. It's actually intentionally to decide to aim at another target altogether. Jeremiah 2.13. We won't turn there. There's this lament of the Lord as he cries out under the old covenant to the people. He says this, I promised you inheritance, provision, everything. I've given you my very self. I've given you my name. And he laments. He says, instead, you're drinking from broken cisterns. I am the source of living water. Here I am. What are you doing drinking from cisterns that you've created of your own effort? And yet they're broken. They're giving you Nothing. You see, there is this sense in which so often we can recognize on some level His love. But then we're never really willing to live in the reality of what it means. Do we really believe that God is good enough? Do we really believe that He's strong enough? Do we really believe that He is big enough. The truth is, if we're not drinking from Him, if He is not the source, if we're not looking to Him for our affirmation, our comfort, our satisfaction, then we're looking elsewhere. We're drinking from cisterns. We're drinking from what we can do. I got this. I got a cistern. It's got a few holes, but I'm okay. God is saying there's living water. What are you doing drinking from that? I'm here. It's my love that you need. It's my love that satisfies. My love is the purpose and the mission of your life. So often the sin we see is really just behavior that's a symptom of belief. It's the manifestation of a belief that he really is not good enough. He's not strong enough. And here is the Father. Standing there, 
with the tenderness of his heart, with a passionate pursuit, calling his sons and daughters, come out, be separate from a world that is searching everywhere for what only I can provide. I will come to you. I will be your father. Just never forget the source. I am the source. For the worship team to come back, I want to end with a couple of things. I'm going to end with communion, but I just want to lead us there in a certain way. I saw an interesting article. You might have seen this one. It's in the Canberra Times. The article was entitled, The Small Improvements Needed to Deliver a Big Boost to Our Well-Being. This particular article was referencing our treasurer, Scott Morrison, who recently very proudly proclaimed that Australia is at the top of the global leaderboard, referring to the, the growth in GDP over the past quarter. We're in our best economic place that we've been in the past six years. And yet it was contrasting our economic success, our educational success, our wealth with another well-being index, the Australian Well-Being Index, which was released just this week. And this is written from a secular point of view, but it noted that the Well-Being Index dropped to its lowest mark since they began it. Went on to talk about some other measures of well-being, contrasting perhaps our economic wealth and success with the well-being of the people. Another one, the Fairfax Lateral Economics Index. This one really surprised me. It put the annual well-being cost of mental illness in Australia at $214 billion, which is equivalent to about 12% of the annual output of our economy. 12% of our output is dealing with the fact that we're not doing okay as a nation. You couple that with a couple of stories this week of high-profile celebrities who tragically have come to a place where they believe that the only option was to take their own lives. What does this show us? There's a number of observations. As I said, I'm bringing this to a close. It shows us that there's no amount of money, influence, resources, or even personal determination that can ever fill the spiritual deficit of the heart. Doesn't matter how prosperous, how educated, how successful, how influential we might be in the natural. Ultimately, it's only ever drinking from the system of human endeavor. We are designed, we're made, we're created to live in His provision. And I feel like this morning that's the invitation. He's calling us to come home he's calling us he's saying this is what you need this is what you're longing for I read last week as I led the service I've been pondering for a couple of weeks the the Sermon on the Mount Matthew chapter 6 where Jesus is preaching and he says do not worry do not be anxious some translations say about your life about the clothes you wear about the food you eat, do not be anxious. Now notice there, it doesn't say don't think about it. It doesn't say don't bother about it. Don't bother about your diet. 
it says, don't be anxious about these things. But know that there's a father. He feeds the birds. He clothes the grass. How much more will he provide for you and I? And we live in a world that statistics tell us that anxiety and stress and strain is at the highest level that it's ever been recorded. And I don't think it would be right to be so simplistic as to say there's one answer. But I know in my own life there is a reality that so often we're simply drinking from our own source and our own supply. What is it about anxiety? So anxiety means for us, and this is for someone here I know this morning, anxiety means that somewhere in me there is a greater focus and concern about my inability than his ability. I cannot be anxious and concerned about these things and trusting in his provision and his supply at the same time. So we're going to come and join and have communion. The worship team is going to lead us. And could I get a few people just to move some of those elements from that table over to this table here? That'd be great. Thanks, Eric. A couple of others too. We're going to have two tables set up the front. And just as we worship, just in your own space, you're welcome to come and to take the bread and the cup. There's no more powerful picture of his provision than to remember his body that was broken for us. And to remember and partake of his blood that was shed. To remember that there are many things that could be the source of our lives. So the problem with, with people and with countries that have so much is that we have so much. We have so much that could be our source. Our bank accounts, our houses, our families, our worries, our stresses, our concerns. And his call this morning is, see the open arms of your father and come and drink from the source. And that's the picture I had that we're, we're coming. In fact, Lady Lois sung about it in the prayer room. I forget what the song was. I'd never heard it in my life. But she sung it and it was good. And it was all about coming with empty vessels and he's just filling us with the fullness of his presence. But there's only one type of person that he cannot fill. And that is the person who is already full. So as you come to receive his provision this morning, recognize that we've got we to get rid of that stuff. We've got to stop drinking from the, the empty cisterns. We've got to empty ourselves of the worries and the stress and the concerns and the things that are keeping us from coming and drinking. Come and take a drink. His table is open, but you've got to come empty. 
You've got to come acknowledging what you really need is Him. You don't need to try harder. You don't need to try and fix things in your own strength. I just got to keep going. You've got to say, God, I'm laying down that stuff. I'm laying down my worries. I'm laying down my fears. I'm laying down my insecurities, my doubts, my uncertainty. And I'm coming to drink from the true source this morning. Let's take a drink as we remember Him. Remember your source. So as you do that, if you'd like prayer, that's the altar call this morning. Of course, you can come forward for prayer for anything. But particularly, if you're feeling weighed down, if you are just so worried and anxious, so just consumed by those things, then if you make that intentional decision, come empty. I'm laying down those things and I want to pray and I want to ask the prayer team to pray for a fresh infilling because there's a Father and He's pursuing you and He's ready to pour out His love just as Steph said. He wants to come. He wants to look you in the face and He wants to pour out His love afresh this morning. So if you'd like a prayer just for that fresh infilling after you've had communion, just come and stand. And we're going to pray for you and see what the Lord would want to do. So let's worship. Let's just have communion in your own time. And then if you need prayer this morning, just come and stand here. We've got the prayer team. Maybe if the prayer team could come first and just have communion and then be ready at the front here to pray for people today.